have spoken in the last couple of weeks two different views of Teshuvah itself and two different aspects of Teshuvah itself. First, we have seen how the Rambam in Chotanit, chapter 1, paragraph 1, speaks about a crisis that's going to happen, an impending difficult situation, a tragedy, and he tells the people who have an obligation, who's fired from the Torah itself, to gather together and cry out in the hope that the Lord Father who will avert that crisis, that tragedy, which has been a tried and true formula for, for thousands of years. When there was a crisis of hunger, famine, drought, whatever it was, people would get together in the middle of the city, bring out the Sefer Torah, and they would scream out and hope that there would be some aversion to that crisis and end to that crisis. One of the famous other personalities who engaged this was Hania Magal, who of course drew a circle and stood in the circle when he wanted to rain. have rain. And of course he brought rain. So this has been a very famous method of trying to avert whatever crisis has been. And there are multiple stories in the Talmud where this is what the rabbis are doing that particular time. And for the next 2,000 years, crises were averted with, through prayer, through calling out, where the Rishpada who would enter into the historical process and in fact avert that crisis. And then last week we had said over some of basics of you about crisis, about an individual crisis that takes place in a person's life. And what do you do? Although we cannot understand the rationale, the reason for these kinds of tragedies, kinds of issues that take place, still one should not remain passive, Rabbi Salvechik asserts, and rather one has to be proactive and try to make sense of one's life despite the difficulty that takes place. He does carve out two different kinds of personalities. One he calls Isha Goral, the man of faith, and Isha Yehud, the man of destiny. Isha Goral sees himself as a leaf blown about by the wind. He can do nothing. He sits back and he philosophizes and speculates. Why does this happen to me? He doesn't do anything about it. On the other hand, Isha Yehud, somebody that though crisis strikes, he doesn't spend his time philosophizing and speculating about it. But rather, what does he do? He does something else to improve his situation, whatever it may have been. And of course, the reference over here of what is making is to both personal crises and tragedies as well as communal. The Jews went through the Holocaust. And he wrote us in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And part of what he's writing over here is a call to arms of the Jews to, in fact, be proactive and initiate some kind of action in order to settle into Israel, in order to get involved and to shape and carve, even though this great crisis took place. You might say, why should I do this? I, I can't survive the, cri- the crisis. I have to understand it first. No, you're not going to understand it. The problem of, of why difficulties and tragedies and crises strike individuals or the collective body of Israel is something that Moshe Rabbeinu asked about, Yirmiya asked about, Habakkuk asked about, all great men have asked and challenged heavens to try to understand these particular situations. And yet, it eludes us. Moshe Rabbeinu received no answer, Yirmiya received no answer, Habakkuk received no answer. All we could do is simply to wait and to hope that God will eventually provide the answer which will be the Mashiach according to some. But nevertheless, one starts to be proactive and shape one's own destiny and shape the destiny of the Jewish people. And God forbid, I want you to simply just sit back and bemoan one's fate. We are people of destiny, but we have to shape our destiny, carve it out, whatever takes place. Charlie what? Yes. Yes, he had a very difficult situation. Yeah, thank God Charlie was extraordinarily fortunate and miraculously served. Correct. But many did not. Correct. And many people did not. Yes, exactly. Okay, I agree. And Hashem did this, in fact. But this could mean in that situation where a person who came to such near disaster may sit back and be consumed by self-doubts, by vulnerabilities, by frailties, never go back to the city, never go back to work, and just be tied up within one's own self. Or one can say, look, thank God this happened, and I don't feel guilty that I survived and other people did not. Although, interestingly enough, 
Many people that came out of the Holocaust do, did in fact express guilt. Why did I survive? Not somebody else. The whole family was wiped out. I survived. Why did that happen? I can't deal with that. And to be able to carve out a life and to enjoy happiness and joy in life, despite what takes place, takes a great act of courage, of strength, of wherewithal, of power, of energy, to go ahead and forge and reforge one's life. So that's what Rabbi Salvechik says that one has to do in the aftermath of crisis tragedy. So he studies those two earlier statements about Teshuvah. And they both speak about Teshuvah in those contexts. Now it's time to go to the Ramah himself, Chot Teshuvah, and try to get some insight as to what Teshuvah is really all about. Teshuvah, of course, comes with the word Shuv, which literally means to return. Now we should take note that the Rambam is the first to write the Halachot of Teshuvah. There's nobody before the Rambam that ever thought of conceptualizing and legalizing Teshuvah itself. Interestingly enough, we don't have what you call Masechet Teshuvah. We have Masechet Shabbat, Roshana, Yoma, which is Kippur, Moed Katan, which is Cholamoed. We have multiple Masechtot. Nobody ever thought in the times of Tanaim to write, put together a Masechet Teshuvah. So you raise the question, why not? The answer probably could be, what do you think? Why did ever, yes, Masechet Shukot, whatever issue, Nizikin, how to do business, how to get married, how to get divorced, everything is a Masechet. Okay, that could be, good point. More than override, yes, overriding since that really it plays a role in any Masechet. When I'm talking about Nizikin, or I'm talking about, let's say, uh, Shana, Kippur, this Teshuvah is a Mitzvah question mark, I put it, <coughs> that interfaces with all, everything in Judaism. If I transgress between man and God, on whatever holiday I do, or in Tefillah, or in Shabbat, or on Shabbat, or I transgress with my friends, this Mitzvah Teshuvah plays a role in all of my communal personal and theological issues. So therefore, it's so overriding, it's so vast and complex that you want, you could not systematize it and put it to one masechet. Good point. On the other hand, the Ramam says there's a need to understand the legal dimension of the Shuvah. Shuvah is not simply that which is emotional, psychological and theological, but rather it has a legal aspect to it as well. And the Ramam saw a need. Others did not, as mentioned. There also a need to focus on Teshuvah and to put it in a legal context for ten chapters. So the Ram was the first to see Teshuvah as a legal entity that needs to be conceptualized, systematized, classified, and counted as a mitzvah. So now, you look at the first opening statement over here, we'll make the point that the Ramah puts us in the Chot Teshuvah it was known as Sefer the very first book of the Rambam's 14 books of his extraordinary work of the Torah. The first book is the book of knowledge. And Echot shares a very comfortable place with other items. And it's instructive to see what is, with what is Rambam put the Shuvah with. First, in the first open chapter, it's put Echot Torah, essential principles of Torah itself. Essential. This is of God. How one relates to God. Prophecy. The metaphysical superstructure of the universe. All of that is the first Hechot Torah. Good. Then Hechot is chapter 2 of this 
book called The Book of Knowledge, the art of moral characteristics. What should you have as a personality? He spoke about the intellectual aspects of Judaism. Now he's at the moral aspects of Judaism. So two on the list of issues is which are moral characteristics and how one should conduct oneself in a public context. Good, very nice. And what you said is, there are seven chapters in Chot Ha'ot, one should be aware of, and of course there are ten chapters. Okay, good. Next we have Chot Torah, which has two mitzvot in it, and here, of course, third in line, is a Torah that brings a person the understanding, the intellectualization of the first chapter, of the first chapter of these chapters, namely, which is the foundation principles, and Torah will give you also the right moral balance in life, the right approach to having the right characters. If you're too arrogant, you have a problem. And therefore, Tamut Torah will be able to give you the right perspective on your arrogance, but not to be too arrogant, not to be too abjectly servile to people either. That's also not appropriate. The Rabbi wants you to find the right moral balance between all characteristics. And Torah is that which will give you that hold on the right moral intellectual balance that one has to have. Good. Now what's the opposite of Talmud Torah? The opposite of these intellectual principles upon which Judaism is based and the moral principles is Avodah idolatry. Torah as well comes along to root out idolatry from the midst of the Jewish people. If somebody denies idolatry, the Gemara tells us, that as if you had fulfilled all the mitzvot of the Torah itself. Just get rid of idolatry. Now there are primitive forms of idolatry in Africa, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. The Incas, the Aztecs. Okay, good. There are sophisticated forms of idolatry. Nazism, communism. These are sophisticated forms of idolatry wherein the person may project upon an image, a figure, a land or a country, his own needs and values and desires, and he absolutizes it and says <coughs> that I'm going to live life by these principles. Well, these principles are your own principles. They come from within, projected to without. In a brilliant chapter that describes the modern aspects of idolatry, Emil Fackenheim speaks about idolatry as a modern possibility, and he says that we should not be so simplistic as to think that even primitive idolatry was simply that which a person went to the field, cut down a tree, shaped it, carved it, yielded it, and then bowed down to it and said, You're my God. It wasn't that simple. They weren't fools. Many of these 2,000 or 3,000 year old idolaters produce great works of literature, of art, of intellectualism. Uh, what are you talking about? The Greeks or the Romans? Are they that stupid to simply walk into the field, cut down a tree, and shape it into a totem pole, and then bow down to you, my God? They weren't that foolish. So he tries to provide another dimension. Thackenham tries to provide another dimension to idolatry as what it really meant to them and what it could mean in a modern context. So he sees Nazism and communism as modern forms of idolatry when a person will simply reflect on his own values, what I really care about, and even sometimes subconsciously, he's unaware of this, he'll project that the keyword these values onto some other item, object, personality, Hitler, stand whatever it be, and then follow saying that that's my absolute source of values, but really your own, that you projected upon another. And therefore, you do what, really what you want to do. You don't simply do what he tells you. This is really what you want. People needed and wanted Hitler. And therefore, they projected upon him their values. So what he said, they did. Because it really is what they really wanted to do anyway. 
So that's an interesting theory about idolatry. And Torah comes along and says that, no, you are not the deity who is the source of all values or ideas, and nor is anybody else that is human, nor is any object that you projected your values onto whatsoever. No, idolatry is negation, and only God is the absolute source of all values. And God's will revealed in Torah is meant to root out, extirpate all idolatry. So Ram puts Chotah in the fourth tier. You had Kadesh principles of Torah, the Ot moral principles of Torah. Tamut Torah is number three, and number four is Chotah Zarah, which is our main obligation as Jews to root out these false ideologies, these false idolatries. Now, fifth over here then comes Chotah Shuvah. So Ram puts this as the main, as one of the main ideas of Judaism, the Shuvah itself. Number five, the fifth chapter, an extraordinary company as to what is critically important in life itself. Now, interesting as well, the Chotah Shuvah is number five, and is the bridge to the next book. After the book of Knowledge, Sefer HaMadah, the Rambam transfers us to the book of Ahava, expressing one's love for God. Berachot, Chot Kiryat Shema, Chot Tefillin, those items that we do out of love of God. Right, interesting transition. And here, the Rambam sees Shuvah as that bridge. From the intellectual, moral, Tamu Torah, context comes to Shuvah, and it bridges us into the book of love. And of course, the tenth chapter, which we won't get to today, the tenth chapter of Shuvah speaks about love of God. And how does one love God? And how does one approach God in love? So, the tenth chapter of Chotah Shuvah, which is love of God, and the first chapter of the book of love, which is book number two for the Rambam, really fit on the same page. Great transition. Rambam was very concerned about classification, about systematization, about organizing this in a way that provides for growth and development. Good. Now, the Rambam begins by telling us the Shuvah has one mitzvah. Is it so obvious? No, to the contrary, it's not obvious at all. Is the Shuvah even a positive commandment? Because I know it was. And you could raise the question, why is it so obvious that it is? Is there a clear-cut pasuk that tells me, you should do Teshuvah? Now, interestingly enough, let's get some machine here. It's both very easy and very difficult to find a pasuk for Teshuvah. If you're going to say to me that Teshuvah is one of the scriptures of the commandments, you must have a pasuk that's going to indicate that. That's point number one. Someone finds a pasuk. The question is, does everybody else, anybody else find this pasuk? So that we could look at the Ramban. And the Ramban, who of course, criticized very deeply the Rambam's choice of mitzvot in the Sifat Mitzvot, which we had seen a couple of years ago, the Ramban's commentary on Sifat Mitzvot, he does in fact accept the notion that the Shuvah is a biblical category, and yet he says, I have a completely different context, different source, not even close to the Rambam's. So, here we have a Mitzvah, and yet is it really very clear that it's a Mitzvah? Now, let's try to argue it both ways. What would make you say that it's not a Mitzvah? 
Why should I not sign? I that it's like a, a condition, a premise upon which mitzvot are based. It's not Good. It doesn't do anything. Well, he's going to make you do attitude. something. Good point. Uh-huh. We asked for, let's say, sentence before the Rambam, the Shabbat was an attitude. Uh-huh. Before the Rambam. Or the Rambam says, no, it's an action that you must do. Good. Shabbat says, return. What does that mean? Rambam is going to put it in a legal context that has to have an action step to it as well. So Rambam finds an action step. Good. It seems to have been a, 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 a deedless mitzvah prior to the Rambam. What do you really do? There's no deed. To survive an attitude. I'm returning. I'm not doing the sins that I did. Okay, that's good. But to survive not doing, it's inaction. So the Rambam, prior to the Rambam, nobody saw a legal context for it, number one. And number two, nobody had a deed to do with it. And there wasn't a click at Pasuk about it. The Rambam says, no, no. This has to be a mitzvah. Positive with an action tied to it. Why must it be? Now, interestingly enough, we have two different ways of approaching this. Did the Rambam think that Shuvah is a mitzvah first, then went and found the Pasuk? Or did he find the Pasuk first and say, oh, this must be the Pasuk of the Shuvah? Because what came first over here? The chicken or the egg? Or both at the same time? Let's look at the Pasuk that the Rambam finds. Oh, okay, now. Right, so you have to do Shuvah with your fellows, with friends, and with God as well. Absolutely. You have to... Teshuvah is relevant to people. They must do something about I've wronged a person. And with Hashem as well, with God as well. So you're right, of course. Loving... This is L or H? L or H? H? Our? You're right, have Oh, it's love. It is love. Okay, good. So if one does not do so then one needs to do Teshuvah. You're right. Absolutely correct. Let's try to find the Rambam's source of Teshuvah. And then try to figure out for me, try to figure out for me whether or not what to love, love God? Of course you have to love God and love fellow men. I'm not saying You're not saying that? I'm not saying Write it after me. Write it after me. We open up here to Parashat Nasur in the book of the Midbar chapter 6 which is found on page one second 290 something one minute talk about Nazir one second I'll find the exact Pasuk I think it's five that's so tough. Yes, chapter 5, page 290. Okay? Here's a source for the Rambam. Page 290, chapter 5, verse 5. Pasuk 5. Moshe, tell the Jewish people, a man or woman who commits any wrong towards his fellow man, right? Doing what? Rebelling against God. Right? And then that person is guilty and aware of his guilt. Verse 7 says, He shall confess the wrong that he did, and he shall make restitution. Heshi the Shemotor, return, Heshi, return now what you have done, and add 20% to it, one-fifth you are obligated as a fine, and give it to whom he has wronged. This is about a very limited context of stealing something, it seems. Return what you've stolen, add 20% to it. As a matter of fact, it's not like talking about 
the average prostate steel pump, rather from Kiddushah, from Horus, from the sanctuary. I'm only allowed to get 20% if I steal from the sanctuary. If I steal from the man, I'm going to add 20% of that. And look at Pasuk 8. If a man does not have the means, or the person cannot be found to whom to, to give us to mate, then you give it back to the Kohen. And then he needs Kapara. Right? <clears throat> and verse 9 talks about sacred donations. So this seems to be a sacred, quote-unquote, context. Not your average Mishpatim type of context, context where I steal from my fellow man. Now, if that's the case over here, so the Ram finds in this Pasuk, verse 7, Vidui. That means Teshuvah. So now the Ram is going to use this verse as the focal point for all Teshuvah. It seems from the shot of the context to be really something much more limited, much more focused in one particular item. Not that powerful, profound context of Shuvah that I was looking for. Ramban does not accept this as a source of Shuvah whatsoever. And I understand why. It's too limited, too focused. It's only one particular aspect. Ramban finds Shuvah in the book of Zedarim, <coughs> something that we just recently read, Pashat Nitzavim, Page 440 and 441. Here we have the first ten pesukim that emphasize one word. And count how many times on page 440, 441, this word appears. Here, Torah tells us that what's going to happen to you in the end of days, the blessing and the curse, and specifically the curse of Pashat Kitavur, and you're going to be exiled, what's going to happen then? Hashem Here you have the word Shav, return to your heart. Wherever you happen to be exiled to, return to your heart. Vishavta, and return to Hashem Rekecha. Vishamata, listen to his voice. Right? Verse 3. Vishav, and Hashem shall return you, shall return to you, because you returned, that's four times. Vishav, and he shall return, that's the fifth time, and shall gather you from all of these places. Wherever you are driven to, to the end of the earth, from there God shall gather you and bring you back. And bring you back to the land of your forefathers, and do good for you and multiply you. And verse 6, and verse 7, all this, and 8 is Tashuv, you shall return. Right, again, and this is what God is saying, and God shall make, bless you and provide all that you need. So all, and then of course, verse 10 again, when you listen to the voice of God, to keep all His commandments, Tashuv, you return. So here you have the word Tashuv, Shuv, Shavtah, eight, nine, or ten times and these ten so this becomes the focal point. So Ramban finds the source of Teshuvah over here. Great, I understand it. Makes perfect sense. Why does the Ramban accept this is my source of Teshuvah? Because this is futuristic. This is telling me that when you're exiled or if you're exiled and the Teshuvah, the God will accept the Teshuvah and bring you back. So that's futuristic and it's collective. Ramban wanted something now and personalized, individualized. Plus the Ramban wants second. Sorry? And there seems to be no Aselbe, exactly. Right, there's no Aselbe here. In my first context, Rabban Vidvadu, do something, do we do Vidvadim, admit your sin, confess to your transgression. So in that context, the Rabban does find a great source that's limited and too localized. And the Rabban says, this is the source of the Shuvah, but the Rabban has a start with that. So you have two sides of this, two dimensions of this. Harvey. 
love my parents. Yes, love wife. Yes, children, fellow and God. These are and then sit down, stand up, have alone. That's a very difficult set of priorities. That's a, I don't know. You, you feel this is the right set of priorities. Oh, sure. Definitely. I think love is more complex than that. In other words, love could... I, I don't know if I'd, I'd be able to put them in such strict scientific order. Parents, wife, children, fellow God. That's too hard for me. There are times when one loves... I'm sorry? Different kinds of love. Good. Smoke a Different kinds of love. Sorry? And there are parallel paths. Parallel, there's different kinds of love, parallel paths. And there's also what I would say, times when it's easier to love God than wife, and there are times when it's easier to love wife than God, easier to love parents than wife, and there are times when one loves one's wife more than one's parents, or differently than one's parents. Love is too complex with a lot of different arrows pointing a lot of different directions. And somehow we muddle our way through. In other words, when you're going out, and you're madly in love, right? right? Who thought of parents in that time? You couldn't wait to see your Emily's that morning. I remember when I, when I was deeply in love, I was in South Africa. We were doing seminars for kids of South Africa in 1975. And um, I was writing the for the beginners. Speaking about Hashem, about God, and, and projecting towards God, and how to understand God, and what's going all about. So once he comes to me, the third day of seminar, and we pray, of course, very little. We pray to Shaman. I'm like, these kids don't know anything. South African kids don't know anything. And now, in those, when we were working at seminar, you saw, I saw Emily for your separate campuses for about 20 minutes at breakfast, 20 minutes at lunch, and 20 minutes at night, and I was there. Right. But I was in love. So this kid comes to me and says to me, Rabbi, Rabbi, I found God, I saw God, and God is with me, I feel it, I feel it, I feel it. Right. I said, I'm really happy to hear that, but I have to go see Emily now. Have a nice day. <laughs> and that's a true story. Uh-huh. I have such a need, a love, a feeling uh, in me to go and see Emily. I only 20 minutes, so you, you keep your... I'm just kidding today. There will be a guru on some mountain in, in the Himalayas. I don't know where he's, where he's doing. I don't know if he's still telling the story. So, in that particular context, love of Emily was more important than love of anything else. So, love is that which really changes its shape, its form, its color, its nuances. It's a, it's a multifaceted, complex emotion that we feel differently at different times. So, you're a scientist. You could very easily put these in this structured order and feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable that way. I'm a humanist. So I have very different feelings about it. Love your parents first. You love your parents differently than you, and then you love spouse or children differently. At the same time, interesting question, of course, would be if that love conflicts, that's very painful. What happens if your wife doesn't get along with her in-laws, your parents, and she won't invite them to your children, you, and she won't invite them to your children's weddings? That has happened in this community. And you love your wife, you love your parents, right. and your kids are getting mad, and you want your kids to be happy, you love your kids. Right. Wow. Right. Yeah. That's no, a wild story. It's to, ch- to, to choose for any one of them. It's impossible. It, it's, it's difficult. I think God, love of God, and this is the brilliance and the genius of the concept of Sedem God created all. So therefore, there's a reflection of the love of God in love of spouse, love of parents, and love of fellow man. Love your neighbor, and Hashem, because I am God, means God is He who gives you the value to love all. When Martin Buber made the point that when one loves one's fellow man, one is loving God, and when one loves God, one's loving one's fellow man. Or alternatively, love of God is preceded by love of man. You can't get the love of God if you don't love man. If you love yourself first, love of self, you've got love of self over here. I don't know. You don't love yourself? 
No, this one I have it all. Love affairs. Where's love of self? You don't love self? It's, it's down. Oh, mine's only. Yeah, you love yourself. But his is only. God is the fifth of the list. Yes. Okay, okay. I think it's more complex than that. I think it's more complex. Let's go on over here and see how the Rambam resolves these issues. So we come back to this Pasuk, and that's the Rambam's source for his tissue by itself. Now, interestingly enough, the Rambam is very clear. But I'm not sure. Does the Rambam read the Pasuk first say, this is the Shuvah comes out of this? Or the Rambam says, there has to be a Mitzvah Teshuvah, let me find that Pasuk. I'm not sure what came first, the Rambam. Usually the Rambam is very clear about this. And presumably one would argue that the Rambam read the Pasuk, oh, this is Teshuvah, and then he classified it. But that's the way it usually works. I'm not sure if it works this way. And my Pasuk is not that clear that gives me confidence that the Rambam really looks at, ah, here's the Teshuvah right, o- right over here. Now, interesting again, is that here you have ten chapters of Teshuvah revolving around one Mitzvah. Comparatively, in the Chod Abba I have 51 commandments and I have 12 chapters. I go back to Chod Abba Kochavim. Here, there are 51 mitzvot involved in Abba in idolatry. Two positive commandments and 39 law ta'aseh. It's interesting to study this separately. Maybe we'll do so when we begin the semester, a couple of weeks from the holidays, to study Chod Abba idolatry. 51 mitzvot are involved in 12 chapters. Here we have one mitzvah and 10 chapters. It's, just, it's fascinating the scale upon which Ram puts all of these concepts of mitzvot. Interesting issue. So here the Ram sees one mitzvah and he says to us, Return from the transgression before God and confess it. Now, is the mitzvah to Return or to confess? What would you say? Is it the return or is it both? Well, it's both. Okay, so the aser of doing it is the deed aspect or the physical manifestation of that internal state of mind. Right? Now we understand the point made before that Shiva is an attitude. It's a desire to do something. And we do divarim, vidvadir, is a deed that expresses that internal state of mind. Right? We agree with that. Okay, good. So let's see now. Let's go, go, go. Let's go ahead. What's the say today? We say that we want to no? Yes. For the, the, after you make the Shuvah, right? We don't say We say it. We don't yeah. say it at all. On Shabbos. We do say it on Shabbos. You don't say it on Shabbos. We don't say it on Shabbos. Right. We say it on Shabbos. But they do it all. Yeah, we do now. It's an interesting question. Why? Now, what's in that? Don't. You don't say Ashamnu on Shabbat. Why to this and not this? Good. Good question. Good question. Um, it's probably rooted in Adina Maritano is not viewed as a request for our private needs, number one. I know that's what I'm. Let me go slowly. Wait, 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 wait. Let me try to keep this out as we said this. And on Shabbat, we don't say, we don't ask for private needs. That's where the Amidah is different. You don't ask the Prophet, where's our Shivan or Tahunan? Now, are these private needs? I don't so, know. yeah, it's difficult because they do look like private needs that we're asking for over here. And yet, probably the rabbi said this is such an important prayer that we want to say even on Shabbat. Even though it looks like a little bit private needs, it's such a general act of necessity that we say it on Shabbat. Because they say, no, no, it's private needs, don't say it. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. 
I'm not following. Pizza me. Pizza me. I know. Right. This is the order. It's all me. Why no no? Why? It's all me. We love. Okay. We love God. But I mean, but bottom being, I just don't. I didn't say this though. You don't say it. You said it. Why do you say it? Why do you say it? Yeah, I think I was just sort of going with the flow. We were in the Sephardic menu. Oh, okay. Where is that with Sephardic menu? On Park Avenue? The one by the railroad station. Oh, in the, oh, in the house. I mean, the guys. Okay. They said it. She's going with the flow. Okay, he's a flowing person. There you go. Okay, good enough. I buy that. But I always, I hope it's... Because he's done it. But I fear our moral of the aim is as our own. We, we do it because it's so important, so necessary. Um, there is private needs. I don't have a good answer to that question. The history of the liturgy or the prayer is rooted in different communities' appreciation for different tefillot. We don't say Ashana Bagano because that's the Jew. We also we do because Shabbat. We don't admit our guilt or our sin. Shabbat the Jew is there. This is the negative. Same thing. It's the same thing. I agree. I agree. But it's so important that we say it anyway. So now I don't have a better answer for that. I don't know. I don't know. But they don't need to be. I'm saying. I'd rather be here. Yeah, I don't want to be here. I agree. I'm glad you do. So we start in the yard, start with you, and you can say it with them. I don't know. I don't know if I should say it with them. You should not say it. You shouldn't be saying it, I guess. I mean, I think it's... If we say it, it can't be that far off. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's a prayer that, you know, again, that I see why you... Actually, you don't say it. I equally see why it's so important. You know, the flow of Rosh Hashanah is so powerful. Right. That, therefore, to stop this and say, we're not saying this at all, and to remove it completely is too much of a transition that would be inappropriate in the context of Shabbat between Rosh and Yom Kippur. I understand why the rabbi is saying, look, we're in a Rosh mode, and we're thinking about all these items. To all of a sudden, desist from it completely, right. and not say it, it's too radical, it's too difficult. We're in our city, Meta Shabbat. Therefore, it's appropriate to say. So I think what the rabbi thought of, that they had said that this is so powerful of a prayer, it outweighs the Shabbat aspect of personal needs not saying. It's ten days, not nine days. Right, ten days. Yes, yeah, so maybe that's part of it. Which is Shana Yom Kippur and seven in between. Yeah. Yes. So let's go back to the Rambam. Okay. So now, the Rambam is saying this over here. Every Mitzvah. The Rambam is a very clear, interesting, conceptual statement about Teshuvah. He opens up very clearly. All Mitzvah Torah, whether it's positive or negative, if you transgressed over any one of them, intentionally or accidentally, you run into the Shuvah and you return from your sin, you have the obligation of Vidui Yivarim. So Vidui is the deed Hayav, you're obligated to do Vidui Yivarim. That's that you're obligated to do the Shuvah. Because the Shuvah is not, you, can you command the Shuvah? Return. It's attitudinal, it's emotional, it's in your heart. I, was, I wronged somebody, I must now feel regret. And therefore, for the Rambam, the obligatory aspect of it is Vidui Yivarim. Verbalization of the transgression as opposed to into Hayashi Teshuvah. So, therefore, when the Teshuvah, or Teshuvah arises or awakens in your heart and you return from your transgression, you're obligated to do the Dudivarim. Now, also, I find it interesting that even a Shigaga, an accidental transgression, is viewed as in need of atonement. I would not have thought so ordinarily. Why not? 
I accidentally opened the light on Shabbat. I was yawning and my elbow hit the switch. I didn't really do this, don't worry. I didn't do this. Uh, Don't worry about that. I did other things. That that wasn't the one that I did. I did. I didn't yawn on Shabbat, so I opened the light. So now in that situation, why am I held responsible for that? Okay, so if I did a Shigagab, let's say that I should have known better. I say, I didn't know what time candle lighting was, or I know what time Shabbat started, and I ended up opening the light at... Right. After yeah. Shabbat, I should know Shigagab. The Ram says to be more all-embracing than that. Any kind of accidental issue. What is obligated to do to Shuvah for? Right. Now, that's if I... Even, we have to really analyze this and see if it's really correct or not. We accept the fact that if I should have known what time something is, right. that's one issue. But on the other hand, the first issue is I just yawn and I hit the light switch. That's a different category. And perhaps the Rambam will include that in another category called honest. Honest means it's completely out of your control, not your fault. So now, do I have to do Teshuvah and try to achieve Kapara for acts of honest? One would think not so. Yeah, we have, we'll get back to that. We have Pesukim to talk about that issue. Correct. We have this Gemara which says, Honest Rahman Patriah. Any case of honest, which is not your fault whatsoever, Rahmana, Gosh God, Patre, you're forgiven. I mean, you're patur from, it's not your fault, you're honest. Couldn't win in the matter. Let's draw some distinctions. In the context of it's about a rape that takes place. And if the rape takes place in the city, it's one story. In the field, another story. In the city, you could have called out and saved yourself. So you didn't call out, so you really somewhat responsible for this. So therefore, you don't assume that it was really a rape. That you really was interested in this situation happening, and therefore, if you were engaged or married somebody else, you're halal mitafada. She's halal mitafada. As is, of course, the rapist. And in the field, you could have called out a woman who was going to heal you. And in that context, so she's honest. Not her fault. What are you getting involved with? It's not her fault at all. And therefore, she needs no atonement, nothing else. Now, of course, this means that if you're in the city and still, if you call the mother who heard you in the basement, then you're still called honest, right? So, there are different levels of responsibility of honest. Let's say a woman hangs out in a very uh, difficult place of ill repute, let's say, Times Square before Giuliani, and you're asking for trouble. So, if something happens to you, you're not honest any longer, you're going to call your You don't want this to happen, let's assume, and you're just, and something terrible did happen, but you are responsible somewhat. So now we're trying to make distinctions between honest and shigadah, and of course, mezid, intentional. Right? All these different levels of transgression that one wants to make. So the Rambam says, whether you are transgressed intentionally or the shigadah, which I'm not going to put in the category of just yawning and opening a light, because that's honest. That wasn't my fault. So that means I should have known better. Similar to, let's say a person is cutting down a tree, in the famous case, and his axe flies off and kills somebody. Right. right? Now that person has to go eat in the cloth. He's called a shogeg. Let's say what happened over here was a situation where you brought a new axe. It's 100% good. It shouldn't have flown off from the handle. So that's not my fault. And it flew off and hit the tree in the back I went all around and ended up in your yard, which never should have happened in a million years. Now, what happened? That's honest, and that person is not obligated to go to Ed McClough. Okay. Not for whatsoever. It's driving 20, in a 25-mile zone, and God forbid you hit somebody, it's not your fault at all. That kid ran down the street, it's not your fault. Okay. If you're driving 40, then you're not, maybe it's not intentional, but you're sure gay. Something happens, you are guilty of an offense. 
That should be so good. You should be driving 30, 25 miles zone. Right. And I'm just driving 20, 25. I'm doing what I should be doing. Kid runs out. Not my fault. I couldn't see. I couldn't, I couldn't see. Let's see if brakes fail. So the question is, when does some check the brakes? If you have a new car, brakes should be good. You have responsibility. You're honest. I assume the brakes are good in the new car. I haven't took the brakes in five years, seven years. Once they fail me on the highway and I hit it on the car, that's not honest. We're calling that shogeg. Yes. Shogeg goes in the clot. Right. Honest is not going to in the clot. So Torah does, in fact, make distinctions between shogeg and honest. Or the Ramah is not telling us that. So we have to go ahead and see when he's going to make this distinction. Why do you think that shogeg and zagon? When you do the shogeg, you return from your sin, you're obligated to do the duty of Adim, a man or woman that did any kind of transgression, they shall verbalize their transgression that they made. Right? Good. Now, the Ramam really is creating for us now in the first paragraph the four stages or four steps of the Shuvah. One is, you really transgressed. Two is, I verbalize my transgression. Three is, I did that you no longer do that transgression. And first, Kabbalah Ha'atid, which we'll get to in a minute, which means I accept upon myself that I will be determined and resolved never to revisit that transgression. Right? I had a McDonald's cheeseburger. I didn't really, no kidding. Uh-huh. You want them to think that I had a cheeseburger? That's right. Okay? They don't care. They don't care. They're, they're, they're interesting. They don't think that. Good. So now, what do I do? I'm aware that I was wrong to do it. Number two, I verbalize it. I do my video to in. I no longer will do it. I, I, I stop doing it now. And Kabbalah means I accept upon myself in the future. I never longer do this again. Good. Those are the four steps. Now here, interestingly enough, the Raman wants you to do the Dividim, liberation of it, and you must specify what is the transgression that you did. Why do you think the Rambam wants a specification and verbalization of it? It's not enough to think about it in general. You have to have a specific statement which says that you've done something wrong. Good. Verbalization means tangibility. And all the more so, specification. I did X wrong. I simply say, I was acting inappropriately. It's not good enough. Because the Rambam wants that transgression to reverberate and to be so powerfully reverberating within your own soul that the Ramban is saying for you to ultimately really see what you did was wrong you must confront it say I was a bad guy that's not good enough rather you must verbalize it in the act of the duty of any more confession to make sure and specify to make sure that you really are already facing it you're seeing it Almost, it's an act of self-confrontation in order to be able to resolve it and no longer revisit it. No longer, don't, no, don't do it again. One over here is very psychologically, more so than theologically, precise and powerful. In that, he's saying, look at this transgression. That area may have been. And now you're feeling it. You're touching it. You're sensing it. And you also want you to feel that revulsion about doing it. He wants a transformation of character. And the only confessing it and ending it, closing a book on it. If you never confront it, you won't close the book. Example given. 
let's say you got your young girl, 20 years old, 18 years old, 15 years old, in high school, let's say. And you want to have a person that your parents don't like. So now what happens? The parents say, you must leave this person. He's a bad, bad guy. You're forced to leave the person. Now, three or four years later, let's say, ready to get married. Something that's bothering you about this whole story about marriage. And this other guy keeps popping into the scene. He's still lingered in your mind and your heart. Not because you really like him, but why? Because you didn't resolve that relationship. It wasn't closed as a book. Because your parents made you do it, they pulled you away from it, and they're the ones that caused the relationship to break up. And you have this need, let's say, to close the book yourself. Because maturing means I make decisions by myself. I want to decide to close this relationship. And fine. So now you have a need to go to the sky and tell the person, I end the relationship because you're not a good person, whatever reason may be. Otherwise, it stays open as the most festering wound that you didn't resolve ever. No band-aids. You just walked away from it. You want to, as a mature person, now you're ready to get married, you want to take responsibility and close all the past books and now we go forward. Or similarly, let's say, same situation, and love the guy, great guy, new guy, 21 years old, okay, ready to get married, and you want to marry in June. Parents, and they say, or in the we say, getting married in December. I really don't want that one. You're not that secure. Are you sure. showing a girl would take orders from their parents more than a guy would? Or is it saying you're choosing an example of a guy? It could be. It's a good okay. point. It could be one way or the other. That's what you're doing. Okay. Either way, but it's, it may make the point clear. Uh-huh. And this situation is you're being told when to get married. You want to get married. You say, no, I don't want to get married in December. I said you are. And it's an uneasy feeling because this is an unresolved tension, emotional tension that still swirls around. And now you have all kinds of doubts. Do I really want to get married to this guy? Do I, really get I don't want this whole story any longer because this tension, emotional tension that's been created that I'm not in control any longer of my most important decision in my life, which is that I want to get married. And I really do want to get married, but I don't want to be manipulated during December rather than June. So, unresolved issues. Let's say you had a fight with your college roommate. You had a family. Sure. You had a family. I had a family. I had a family. I had a family. I had a family. Give me two minutes, okay? Two minutes. So... Get your stuff out of my family. Yeah, you had those. Let's say when you left my friends, it bothers you. It's still 20, 25 years later. It's not a resolved emotional relationship. Now, if you're like me, you was afraid to confront people. It's something to do all the time. I could feel resentment, feel anger, emotional tension at a person for 20 and 25 years and and I can't get past it. Yeah, I never closed the book on it. Um, I, I'm too shy to confront the person, let's say. It was not confronted. So we parted as non-friends, let's call it. Right. And it's not a big deal. It's a small little issue. You know, you, you coffee cup. You My first year of graduate school, true story, first year of graduate school, I had two roommates, very nice, walked in, and I finished it, my breakfast, okay, we, three guys, and I'm running off to graduate school. So I left my dishes in my sink, and of course I would rush when I got home. I got home from graduate school, 3 o'clock in the, in the afternoon, it was 4 o'clock, I find the dishes on my pillow. And then I grab it, and they tell me, we don't do it, we don't leave dishes over here. You wash them when you finish eating. We don't want to hold dishes. I didn't know that, but on my pillow you put it, that's I mean, that was an ill story. That was the first bad step. And it was only one year, but it went down from that to worse. And I'm not a bad guy, and then we left. Okay. Then we left. Now, also, I got married that year. I didn't invite him to already. Not out of animosity. I just had too many people. So, look, I'm not that close to him. I'm not going to invite him. 
Two years later, he got married. <clears throat> and my wife taught his bride to, for the kalah, for being, uh, you know, for quarter of Boston. She got right to the night and get back to the wedding. We were married. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. She told me, you come to the wedding, but your husband can't come. Me. So, of course, Emily didn't come. Emily didn't go to the wedding. But this other guy, I understand his feeling. I didn't care. I don't want to go to the wedding. I was in Boston. I was happy. I didn't want to go to Booker to the wedding. He the wedding anyway. Didn't make a difference to me. One way or the other. Obviously not. But it was an unresolved tension. It's still unresolved. It's just still there. And I, I, I can't, didn't work it out. I don't important. It's not important to me. I don't care about that. But it's unresolved. I have a relationship of 20, 25 years that should be not resolved. It's still open books. And, it's still, and I don't feel, I don't dislike the person. I understand what happened. We were somewhat immature maybe. Whatever took place. And we had ups and downs and all that. And it turned out like I was very close to the other roommate. He resented that because he, you know, should have been. He thought he should have been closer. Things just did not work out. There was no angry, yelling, screaming words. Just, just tension. Never resolved. I still feel it festering because it didn't close the book. You had to confront it. So look, I'm sorry it didn't work out. Let's be friends. Let's not even talk to each other. Let's just not close the book. Is that okay with you? Is that okay with me? Okay, good. That's it. And then they can walk away from it. But I do, and many of us have these open books with people that go back 20, 25 years mm-hmm. that we just didn't resolve. Okay. Face it, confront it, resolve it. I don't do that very well, so therefore you have all these little stuff floating around. Sure. You got to make a call. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And this is the same thing. Absolutely 100% correct. I can't make the call now. I hope they're really crazy. This is 25 years ago. I in fact think I wrote him a letter. Maybe, what if I wrote him a letter? He'll write back or something. So I don't know what happened, but I have, I, yeah, yeah, I have two of those things where I just came, I don't deal with these people any longer. One person wronged me terribly when I was, uh, we were in camp in Israel, and I just took my, he didn't have a toothbrush. It was a stupid thing, it was so stupid. He got a toothbrush, and it was no place to bed, we were in this camp uh, site. For ten days, he, he stole my toothpaste, used my toothbrush, he wouldn't give it back to me. Give me my toothbrush, you wouldn't give it back to me. So he went there, I'm going to tell Aviv. Right. How do I forgive this guy for this? This guy's a mission case. Okay. So I tell you, it's a true story. And I, I just couldn't deal with it. He went to tea. He stole my seat. And when you're back, give me my seat back. You don't need to give up Tarek. No, no, I want my seat back. Give me my seat. Couldn't deal with this guy. And that's 25 years later. Exactly. And I still... What you need is five of us will go to his house. Right? <laughs> Thank you so much. Sorry, man. We're going to knock him into the heart. <laughs> that's okay. No, I do forgive him. I don't care about the toothbrush. But I, I, how do you get? How do you get past it? That's my question. Emotionally, so that's it's, it's, you could say forgive him. I do forgive him. I don't care. It's not important to me any longer. Sure. But I can't emotionally get past it. So the one I'm saying about here is, no, I don't want to do this. I don't care about it any longer. I want to talk to this guy. I saw him a couple of months ago at a dinner in Manhattan. He's with his, his daughter. She's 21 years old. They've grown up. He says to me, "I want you to be my daughter." Okay, have a nice day. Leave me alone. No, 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 that was your chance, Rabbi. What are you talking about, boy? Excuse me. <laughs> What's my toothbrush? <laughs> no, you don't say that. No, 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 Rabbi, Rabbi. Wait, I have an idea, guys. This is it's not important. You don't say, no, no, it is, because, Rabbi, you're the focus. You don't say to him the toothbrush, because he, it's camp, he won't even remember. He won't remember. You know, suddenly, sure. in camp, you were really cruel to me, and now you, or you were really annoying to me, you were really obnoxious. Now you come around, you want me to meet your daughter. I would like to hear some apology from you or from the way. And don't even mention the toothbrush. <laughs> say, you in camp. I can't confront. I, 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 Absolutely. Look at right in the face here. I'm a rabbi. I have 500 well-fed big guys in my shorts. He was telling me, I'm a psychiatrist. You need help. Psychiatrist. Said, no, no. You can be mad at him. You say, you want to meet your daughter? You want to meet your daughter? I don't have a good memory of you. 
Why should I meet your daughter? It would be nice. I'd just rather walk away from it and let it bother me, not let it bother him. He doesn't care. That's all right. It's easier that way. So the point over here is that the Rambam here is trying to bring it out in the open, so to speak. Specify. I have transgressed. I'm confronting the item of my transgression. I want now to confront it. Deal with it. What do I have to have that cheeseburger? What do I have to open up to watch the World Series? Confront it. Agonize over it. Engage it. Anguish over it. And then resolve it. So the Roman seems to want you to confront it and to resolve it. And of course the Pasuk. That's what we do today. So this is what we do now is we start out as a positive end. How do you, because you step two, how do we do today? Say, please God, I have transgressed. I have done intentionally wrong. I have done it to anger you. Three different levels. Hate is an accidental transgression. I think it's intentional. I have the right. Pashati means I did it to rebel against you. I, I didn't even want you to cheese work up. I guess I'm so angry at you, God, that I did it for that reason. This is what I did, and I specify. I specify. And now I regret, and I'm shamed. The Rambam wants you to regret it. Okay, that's easy to regret it. But to be shameful of it, the Rambam wants a psychological, emotional reaction to it. So face it, confront it, and see it, and then feel shame over that transgression. The Rambam is very demanding right. in the steps of Teshuvah. Yes. Hard to feel shame that I ate a cheeseburger. I don't know if I like cheeseburgers, man. No, I don't right. cheeseburger. No. You should understand God said no cheeseburger and you did eat cheeseburger right. and feel that shame. As a child, you, know, you can raise this, I'm going to have to stand up because they're waiting for us. But you could raise the question, because we're going to switch to finish this first chapter. Hopefully you won't mind. Just one more week, even though it's after you have to It still is relevant. That I would say is that your child wrongs you. Takes your car without permission and drives it all over the place and comes at 3 o'clock in the morning. You're really upset at that. Look, okay, I'm sorry. What'd you do wrong? You want him to realize it. I took the car, you know, I took the car, that you have mission, drove the place, use all the gas and everything else like that. Now, do you want to feel shame as well? Why does Ram want you to feel shame? The shame should be almost a natural reaction of true regret. He just says, look, Dad, get over it already. So I took the car, big deal, I'm sorry about it. That's not real Teshuvah. It's almost, there's an arrogance to it. And the kid may not have had to do it in a more in a more, a more appropriate context. But the shame seems to be appropriate in that it means you really understand that you did what was wrong and you're shameful and then you could say, okay, I forgive you for that. That's what I'm going to want. We'll just finish this chapter next week. Thank you. Have a great day.